Hey friends, welcome to Reorthodox Theology. My name is Justin, and today's guest is Dr. David Wilhite. He is currently the professor of Christian theology at Baylor University. He has written extensively on Tertullian the African. And so today we talk about who this early Christian theologian is and some of his Christological ideas that he put forth. I really hope you are learning and you learned from this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining me. Dr. Wilhite, welcome to the show. Hey, Justin, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. You know, I found your name just searching for a, a scholar on, how do you pronounce it, Tertullian? Sure, Tertullian. Tertullian. Close enough, yeah. Um, and I found you wrote so much about him um, and are, are clearly an expert on this topic. So I really appreciate your time. But then I also found out that you're also a, a, a friend and a colleague of a former guest, Dr. Adam Wynn, and he praised you and your work. So I'm just really grateful for uh, your time today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, good to know that Dr. Wynn had been on here. I'm a friend and admirer of his work. <laughs> yeah. So for people who may not be familiar with you or your work, could you just share a little bit about who are you, where are you, and uh, what are you doing right now? Sure. So I teach at Truett Theological Seminary. That's uh, the school within Baylor University. And here in Waco, Texas, I teach master's level students as well as students in the doctorate of ministry program. And then I even do a little bit of work with uh, PhD students in Baylor's religion department. Mm. But my primary area is MDiv students. I teach what we call historical theology. And uh, it's a sort of blending theology, like systematic theology and church history. My area of expertise within that is what's traditionally called patristics or early church fathers or early Christianity. And yes, my dissertation was on this guy you're talking about, Tertullian. And since my doctorate, I've continued to work on him and other writers like him, especially from the context of North Africa. Mm. And so what drew you to um, do your dissertation on Tertullian? Yeah, he was not really the person I wanted to work on so much as the context. Mm. So we, he's the first Latin writer that we have in Christianity. And a number of his works survive. And so he's a very interesting character on his own right. But he's also, even though he's a Latin writer, he's, in fact, he's been called the father of Latin theology. Mm. He is writing from North Africa, the, what's the ancient city of Carthage. Mm. And he mentions Carthage a lot. He talks a lot about the Carthaginian background and, you know, people who might remember Punic Wars and Hannibal and the elephants and all of that. The North African church was a very strong, had a very strong Christian presence. But since the surviving sources from Western North Africa are all in Latin, most people just think of them as, as Roman and Latin and Western Euro, Westerners and all of that. And to an extent, they are. But at the same time, they're also something else. And so I wanted to explore what was that something else. Mm. Um, many people will be familiar today with like the Syriac church, the Syrian church with its own Syriac language or the Coptic church in Egypt with its own Coptic language and history. These are churches that have been around since ancient times. And because they have their own unique culture, people tend to see them as a unique expression of Christianity. But that's never been done with the North African Hmm. sources because, as I say, their their surviving works are in Latin. And so I I wanted to 
I wanted to check out what was unique about the African economy. What was African about mm. writers like Tertullian? His name is actually the oldest surviving name is in Latin, Tertullianus Affair, Tertullian the African. Mm. So what did that mean for him? And that's how I, I ended up working on him as the earliest writer from that context. And since then, I've expanded yeah. and written on, and worked on later ones as well. Interesting. Now, that's very fascinating. So you, you started a little bit. I was wondering if you could just share... Who was Tertullian? Just a little bit more of anything that you missed out just now. And what were some of his like core tenet contributions to theology? Just like very generally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can I can summarize because he's he's very influential in many ways. Um, I'll I'll go with your last question just to think since I already mentioned how he's the first to write in Latin. Mm-hmm. He has to really invent a a Christian vocabulary. Mm. Because before them, they would there would be plenty of everyone's reading the New Testament in Greek, and so there's plenty of Greek words that are used by Christians to expand and talk about uh, who God is, how salvation works. But you know, even words like justification, mm. I mean, that is a, a Latin word, justificatio. Tertullian chooses that word to translate the, the Greek word in our New Testament. So virtually, if you think of all sort of all of our King James language, right? Um, sanctification, all these words that we use, the churchy word, they come from Tertullian originally. Oh, wow. And so so he's so so I I can go into more specifics about him, but in general he's hugely influential. And as far as who he was, he's he's writing from Carthage in North Africa. We depended on some of the later Christian writers to tell us about him. Mm-hmm. And um that that led to a little bit of mis well, a lot of misunderstanding. He was once thought to you know, we, we once thought we had a sort of series of details we knew about him, like he was a priest, he later in life, uh, so it, it, he was not a born a Christian, he converted, and then later in life, he actually had some sort of revert, uh, pull away from the church and join this Montanist sect, uh, what what we call Montanism, it was at the time called the New Prophecy. Mm-hmm. Uh, his father was thought to be a Roman centurion, he was thought to have been trained in Roman legal code and as, as a Roman lawyer. Um, as it turns out, almost all of that stuff is 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 misunderstandings of his writings. Hmm. So we know relatively little about him in his life. He's writing around the year two hundred, and he has, as I say, several texts that are that are influential because he'll write on whatever controversy comes up. So groups we would call Gnostics. He talks about why you can't have this Gnostic view of the body as bad and have Jesus uh, come and only appear and not really be in the flesh. His works on that survive. His work on, on baptism is the first ever treatise on baptism survives. First ever treatise on prayer is written by him. Uh, I mean, just uh, an apology, which which means a defense, a Christian defense of uh, the accusations made against Christians and why they shouldn't be persecuted. Hmm. Uh, so, so several several treatises like this survives that we know about his thinking. We just don't know as much about his life in, in itself. Hmm. And you mentioned Montanism. That's one of the, my favorite parts about his story is that well actually you said that was a misunderstanding his hair his roots in montanism yeah oh, this no. is this is one of the things he's he's notorious for but it's uh yeah there's been a pretty big revision of how he's understood so so the jerome is the one who first tells us that jerome is writing around the year 400 jerome tells us that tertullian was very influential and was read by all mm-hmm. except late in life he converted to the montanist sect mm-hmm. the montanist heresy and ever since then, everyone looks at Tertullian's works and they say, oh, it's obvious he did convert because, look, he mentions this prophet Montanus. He mentions the prophetesses who were with him, 
Priscilla, Maximilla. He condones their their prophecies. He's uh, is clearly on their side, and he clearly attacks some Christians for not being uh, Christian enough right. and not being in favor of this new prophecy. Now, the problem is, is if you actually didn't think of him as joining a Montanist, uh, you know, church, right. and you read his text, you realize he never ever places himself outside of the church. Hmm. So, for about the last fifty years, all experts have, have agreed. All experts on Tertullian have agreed that. He didn't become a Montanist in the sense of he left the first Christian church of Carthage and went down the street and joined the, the first Montanist church of Carthage. That instead they they talk about him as being influenced by Montanism. Hmm. And that is still no doubt true. Uh, one of the things that I've grown more and more skeptical of, though, and I, I'm somewhat idiosyncratic on this. I, I've published a few articles and, and essays showing that just whatever we normally blame Montanism for in Tertullian's thought, you can usually find that in his pre-Montanus phase where he's never heard of mm-hmm. this guy named Montanus and he still believes that anyway. So if you think that because he started accepting prophecy that that made him a Montanus, well, he already accepted prophecy before that. And Cyprian, who who would never tolerate heresy or schism, uh, he comes after him and also accepts prophecy and calls Tertullian his master, reads him every morning. So it's just no way to think of Tertullian as, as breaking from the church and joining some other movement. Mm. He does condone ongoing prophecy. He does quote some of the Montanist prophecies when they agree with him, but he doesn't seem to change anything in, in his own doctrine. Interesting. Because, yeah, that was taught in a, a class I had recently that he did um, leave the church. So that's fascinating. And then come back. Yeah. But that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's still in all the standard reference works, mm-hmm. but it, unfortunately it takes a while for, for recent scholarship to kind of trickle down mm-hmm. to entry-level stuff. Yeah. Interesting. So were there any uh, influences on the language of Latin and his theological understanding of Jesus and, and his its relationship to the Father? Like any significant words that were in development? Well, again, uh, we don't know what Latin words Christians were wrestling with before Tertullian because mm-hmm. he's the only, he's the earliest one that survives. So, when you look at his text, you can suddenly see him having to, yeah, come up with the best terminology he can. He can. So, so a, a classic one here would be like the word the doctrine of the Trinity. Mm. So the word Trinity is not actually in our Bible. There was a Greek concept that's that's close to this triados. Mm. So a triad, uh, and and you oddly enough. You can find that in some Orthodox, what we would call Orthodox writers, but you can also find very prominent in some of the groups that we would call Gnostics, right? Like the Valentinian writings of this idea of a triad. And so Tertullian probably picked up on this word from other writers that he knows. He reads Greek and he interacts with Greek speakers, but in his own words, he's got to figure out a word to use for this. He comes up with this Latin trinitas. Mm-hmm. So both, in, in, yeah, a, a threeness, but also a unity in that threeness. And that, that, sets the groundwork for what will become the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, there's the famous sort of way of summarizing that where you talk about God as one in essence. In Latin, it's una substantia, but three persons. In Latin, trace personae. I mean, that's Tertullian's formula. Hmm. He's the one who comes up with that way of saying it. So, so yes, he's got he's, he's got a interesting and influential vocabulary. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I did not know the, like the, the significance of his work and on even like the language we use today. That's so interesting and under like, it's not underappreciated, I guess in in the modern church. 
Well, it is. I mean, you can see why. Two two big reasons. If if Jerome and everyone after him said he became a Marxist, well, oh, you don't want to be influenced yeah. by a Marxist. Mm. So, in reality, the damage was already done. Everybody had already read Tertullian up to that point. His vocabulary had influenced all Latin writers, and so he he still did set the stage for them. But you don't want to give him credit mm-hmm. after Jerome, and then you make it. it the other main factor, I think, is Augustine comes in the same tradition. So I mentioned Cyprian. Cyprian reads Tertullian every morning and admits mm-hmm. it. Augustine comes after Jerome. Augustine has read Tertullian but doesn't admit it. Mm. And he does admit he follows Cyprian's thought, who we know was influenced by Tertullian's thought. And then once you get to Augustine, Augustine is no doubt the giant. He's written more than anyone else. He's more influential than anyone else. And and so right, Augustine rightly deserves all the credit he can get. Mm. But um, it is... I do think there it would be helpful for contemporary theology to recognize the debt we owe to Tertullian, yeah. and as we explore these ideas, go back and kind of trace where they originated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, were there any? So, actually, can you just share a little bit about his understanding of the Trinity and Christology in general? How he, you know, worked it out compared to other um, thinkers at, at his time, either before or after? Sure. Well, the, the one thing that is always clear with Tertullian is who the ideas he's arguing against, mm-hmm. if not a named teacher, he at least tells you there is this teaching that is wrong, and then he, he's out to fight. Mm. So he's he's always kind of seen as this really grumpy old teacher who's always battling somebody, and that's probably probably true characteristic of caricature of him. Um, so with the Trinity, you really kind of get the best of his clearest view of his thought. When he's writing against uh, a guy named Praxius, mm. and we're not really sure who Praxius was, but he comes to Rome, and in Rome he teaches what we would call modalism, or sometimes it goes by the name patripassionism or Sabellianism. And and the, the simplest way to think about this is is the, that word mode. If you think of one God who was in a mode or form of existence as father, like in Israel's time, he was a father figure. So in the Old Testament, God is known in that mode. And then in the Gospels, that same one God, and that, that's their emphasis, is we believe in one God. That God showed up as the son of Mary. Mm. He's now in the mode of son. And then he ascends to heaven and is now known in this spiritual mode. So he's in the same one God now known as Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So that's not, that's not our doctrine of the Trinity, of course, because we believe God is both Father, Son, and Spirit all at the same time, not, not changing from one to the other. Well, Tertullian has to take on this argument, mm. and he that's where we get his kind of clearest view of, you know, God must be three, as I say, three per- persons, trace persona. And yet, he doesn't fear that this splits God into tritheism. He still believes that if the Father is omnipresent, then the Son is also omnipresent. And if you have, and, and so of course with the Holy Spirit, and if you have two, three omnipresent beings, you know, he, he kind of makes fun of this idea that they would always be bumping into each other. So you can't have three beings. They have to be one and the same being and yet three persons. Mm. So, yeah, that, that work is where we really, I think, Trinitarianism is shaped over against that other teaching called modalism. Now, his, his Christology, we could, he's got a lot to say about that. I don't know where you'd like me to begin, but it's mostly against these Gnostic groups that he's forging his his clear Christology, which again will become the norm for later sure. Christology, for later Christian thinking. Well, could you start with kind of the conversation of person? Because I think that that I think that would just be helpful for listeners who may be used to that phrase, what you just said. 
Um, but I, I, I think uh, there's, as you may know, or as, as you know, there, that there's more to that word when he was using it. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, so to get really, really basic, just the the Latin word again, persona. Like we still have this, sometimes we don't even tra- translate it right. A persona yeah. isn't necessarily a person, right? You might have a, 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 a an inanimate object that you kind of think of as a persona in a room or in a story or something. That's actually closer to what Tertullian hmm. is, is where he's starting. It was uh, used in, in, in the... the it was used in Latin um, theater, so you would put on a persona, a mask, and sometimes the same actor could come out and put on a smiley face persona and be a protagonist, and then switch and put on a frowny face persona and be the antagonist. Mm. Now, the fear, though, is if you have God switching from one mask to another, that's how you get to that other view Tertullian was actually arguing against, right? There's uh, one mode, then another mode, then another right. mode. Tertullian doesn't think that God switches from one mask to another. He sees God as eternally three persons, but at the same time, he doesn't at all seem to take this to the opposite extreme where you could think of three persons the way we would in a modern sense. Like we're, we're so individualistic mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, I think, therefore, I am. Like, my personhood is defined on my own choices, my own faults, my own will, etc. So if you ended up with that way of talking about the Trinity, mm-hmm. you would not be Trinitarian according to the classic definition. You would actually be tritheistic. Mm-hmm. You would have three people with three different wills, three different, some have tried to, all the centers of consciousness, that's a, that's a way some constructive theologians are kind of trying to bring that idea in today. Uh, and, and whether or not that works is a fair debate, but for Tertullian and others, that would just make no sense. If the father could want one thing and the son could want another thing, well, then which of those things is the perfect divine thing to want? Mm. You would have the father wanting a really perfect divine thing and the son wanting a less perfect divine thing. So so for Tertullian and his tradition, they ha- they they are three persons and yet they share one being one will, one nature, one heart, one lo- love, one mind, all of those things. So, so it's a much more unified understanding of yeah. three persons. Yeah, interesting. Now, the persona, that, that mask analogy is helpful. So where would the best place to start, or be the best place to start on his Christology then? Well, so i got to admit, Tertullian's not easy to read for his... <laughs> in-depth theological debates. I mean, if, so if you just want a good, fun place to read Tertullian, read his work uh, on the Lord's Prayer, read his work on baptism. There's helpful things there that anybody could just jump in and, and read and find interesting and helpful. Now, if you want to understand his Christology, you go to one work called De Carne Christi, or On the Flesh of Christ. Hmm. And all these are available free online. Most of the translations are a little antiquated, but they're still very readable and helpful. Hmm. And in the flesh of Christ, he's he's arguing really adamantly against any group, and that's mostly the Valentinian Gnostics, but also Marcionites and others, any group that would say Christ's flesh wasn't really flesh. Hmm. Maybe Christ, their word was phantasm. Maybe Christ appeared to be in the flesh, was a spirit, was a hologram, was something, or somehow didn't have the same flesh we do. He brought down angelic flesh or some, some something something other than what we normally think of. 
And Tertullian is adamant, this must be the same human flesh as us. He must be like us in every way. He must really suffer, really die. And when you get into that, there's a follow-up to that called On the Resurrection. Mm. And he shows the ramifications of having Christ with anything less than fully human flesh. What that would mean for our salvation is God would only be saving our soul, not ours. Hmm. So our flesh too is, can be sanctified and can be redeemed and will be resurrected. And so you partner these together. You get his view of Christ and there from, from that, his view of Christ's work in our life, our salvation. So... I- and this is this is before Athanasius, right? With the on the incarnation, that's what two hundred years before. That's right. Yeah, about one hundred and twenty-five years so, earlier. W- was Tertullian like one of the <laughs> first to argue for the incarnation? Like one of the m- no, not the first, but he's he's one of the most he he's the first to give us extensive treatises okay. on these matters. So if you go back to even uh, really early writers outside of the New Testament, like Ignatius of Antioch, yeah. he's writing around 117. Uh, he he is also battling a group that he calls docetists. That's that teaching that Christ appeared to be in the flesh mm-hmm. as a phantasm or something. But but Ignatius is more like Paul. He's writing a few letters and he tells you that's bad. Don't believe those mm-hmm. things. But he doesn't give a lot of explanation as to why. And when Tertullian comes along, he, Tertullian is a gifted, uh, he, he's a well-trained, well-educated in the Roman Greek classical system of speeches and rhetoric. And so he's able to put together a sustained argument oh, like few before him have really done. Mm. And so then when, when Athanasius comes along and has to argue the same sort of thing, Athanasius is arguing along slightly different lines because he's dealing with a later different opponent. But Athanasius is borrowing from what many before him had thought. And part of why they thought that is because Tertullian was influential. And I I can't prove Athanasius read Tertullian. That may not be the case, but I'm certain Athanasius read people who read Tertullian. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. And virtually virtually everyone, many, many who would go to the councils that Athanasius went to had read Tertullian. Mm. So, so in fact, the famous Council of Nicaea, um, I can, I can go into the story if you'd like, but it is Tertullian's language that ultimately wins at the council yeah, Nicaea, to, to give us trinitarian tell me that story that yes please <laughs> okay, okay well again uh is not named of the council yeah. of Nicaea, so i have to be careful i'm not claiming too much for him but it is uh it is known that at the council this guy named arius tries to make the son less than the father mm-hmm. somehow less divine right the son the son is like um is is really really strange, really really divine, just not fully fully divine. Hmm. Well, Athanasius King thinks this is wrong. Athanasius is is actually a supporting other people like his bishop at the time, but he's going to be the one to champion these. So when they all get to the Council of Nicaea and rule out that what's called Arianism or subordinationism, that view that the Son is lesser than the Father, they say that they're going to do this with a, uh, insistence that they only use biblical language, mm-hmm. biblical words, biblical phrases. And that, that surprisingly does not go well. All the bishops agree to that rule, but the, the, the tricky thing about Arius is he doesn't, you can't really disprove him on a strict biblicism. Hmm. Like there's just too much wiggle room for Arius to interpret it in another way. Mm-hmm. And so Constantine, to his credit, by the way, Constantine thought Arius was right. He's not on the side of Athanasius. He thinks Arius is going to win. And he's shocked when he gets to the council that, the vast, vast majority of bishops disagree 
with Arius and support the Athanasian, what becomes the Athanasian view. Well, to Constantine's credit, he let the, the bishops decide on their own, but they're just, they're, they're at an impasse. They just can't come up with the language. And, uh, you know, it's always a surprise to some people that the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, never shows up to ecumenical councils he, in these first seven. He always sends representatives. Huh. And the two representatives he sent, these Latin bishops, because this was mostly going on in the Greek East, when these Latin Western bishops come from Rome, the story goes, they're a bit surprised that this is taking so long. And in essence, they don't quote him in the in the written transcripts. The whole transcripts don't survive. But in essence, what we know that they said was, hey, Tertullian figured this out 125 years ago. The phrase you're looking for in Latin is trace persona una substantia. Hmm. And you translate una substantia into Greek. It's this famous word, homoousia. Oh, wow. And so the homoousia clause is what ensures that we believe the son is of the same essence huh. as the father. And consubstantial sometimes is translated. So when they show this to Constantine's advisors, they all nod and say, oh, yeah, this is the language we're looking for. And at this point, they decide to call for a vote. But now notice in Greek, that word, that's a combination, two words. That word itself is not in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of hesitancy about that fact. But essentially, the vote goes to where Constantine says, all in favor, say aye, all the two did all opposed shall be exiled and those two were shown the door hmm. so tertullian's tertullian's language is well one interesting that's fascinating his his influence wow that is so interesting so do you, so your your claim is that the his association or alleged association is is the uh reason people haven't given him as much credit as he's due I think so. I think he's his association with Montanism, and when Augustine comes along, he's just eclipsed. Augustine's a oh, giant. Sure. You forget about Tertullian because of Augustine comes later. Yeah. So besides Montanism, were there any other, or alleged Montanism, were there any other critiques of his theology or specifically his Christology throughout the centuries? So the... Worry was if he's following this Montanist idea, he puts all this emphasis on the Holy Spirit, he must be putting too much emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Mm. And the fear is that the Holy Spirit would, you could claim the Holy Spirit is saying things that the Holy Spirit didn't also say in Scripture. Oh, sure. Now, Tertullian never would would agree to that. Um, he thinks that the term Holy Spirit, he takes Jesus' language in John, but both the paraclete, the helper, or the advocate, will lead you into all truth. Mm. But he doesn't think it's different truth than what you have now. So, for example, if he thinks that um, Jesus said, when you fast, here's how you do it. You don't fast like the hypocrites and all of that. You're supposed to fast the right way. Well, Jesus never told you how often to fast. And he hears the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit speaks in their church, the Holy Spirit is telling people to fast more. Hmm. Well, that doesn't go against the Bible. And it's not even a law. It's not something that people are required to do. But if you want to follow the Holy Spirit's teaching, he wants you to fast every time you feel prompted to do hmm. so. So there's this risk there that a lot of people fear of his, his view of, uh, of that aspect of Trinitarianism. Yeah. And as far as his Christology, no, there's, there's his, his view of Christology is absolutely orthodox. Now, there is two kind of um, troubling things that later tradition will wrestle with or, or not, not like about the way he says it. One, one is what he has to say about Mary, because for him, Mary, like everyone else in the other early church, was and remains a virgin. Mm-hmm. Uh, not it's not the Protestant view where she went on to have other children and lost her virginity. It's the the old 
the traditional view that Mary uh, was and remained a virgin, except he wants to argue against the Gnostics who think that Jesus didn't have real flesh. And I'll try not to get too graphic here, but you know, when a real baby is born, does things to the birth canal that makes that per- person, that woman, not a virgin in a certain sense, not in a way that if you were testing for her virginity with a midwife or something. Mm. So he's adamant. She loses her virginity in that sense, where her physical body is changed from birthing a physical baby, Jesus. And so the fact that he doesn't, that he says Mary's not a virgin anymore for the tradition that thinks of her as always a virgin, he's, he's been a little suspicious on that front. But again, doctrinally, it's not actually disagreeing. Yeah. It's just the, practically what that means. Mm. And then the other one is about how our souls and bodies relate. He's, again, 99% of what he says, everyone will, will just accept and agree with. But he thinks that our souls must also in some way be, he'll use the word corporeal, mm-hmm. like bodily, but he doesn't really mean, I don't think he means material body the way we think. I mean, this comes from a particular Stoic version of, of Stoic philosophy. And Augustine comes along and, and implicitly denounces Tertullian for saying, if you think the soul is somehow material, mm. then you must think that the soul was birthed the same way the body was. And that gets into all kinds of problems of like, wait a minute, did a mommy and a daddy soul somehow make a baby soul the same way a mommy and daddy body made a baby body? Augustine just thinks this is ludicrous, that spirit is spirit and flesh is flesh. And so God is what creates the soul in the flesh. And he doesn't like the way Tertullian put it. So Tertullian's what's called traducianism, the idea that your soul was passed on or, or traded down the line the way that your body is. That is that was technically denounced. Mm. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So I'm trying to think. We could end here, um, but I, 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 I'm, I know your current project is... Um, not about Tertullian, um, but I'm cur- I'd be curious if in your current projects, are there any like correlations or connections? Yeah. Like was Tertullian and the early church fathers drawing from um, the two powers theology or any in any way? Okay, yeah. So uh, there are connections. So I, I'll try to keep this short. Feel free. Hey, As you I've don't have on... to. I'm not in a rush. You don't have to. Okay. All right. Well. Well, I could go on all day with, so I should probably try to keep it somewhat <laughs> short. The, so, so my work started with Tertullian. It expands to Cyprian Augustine, later North African writer. Now, again, what's, what's counterintuitive to most people, most people, Christians even, and even Christian scholars don't really think about the fact that these are some of the most influential Christian voices. Hmm. These are the most influential theologians. And you add to that the Egyptian writers like Athanasius and Cyril and Origen and others. I mean, these are all Africans. And so I've been exploring North Africa. Hmm. And again, I, I'm very interested in the history and the context of all of this, but you just can't get into that stuff without also getting into the theology that comes along. Hmm. They're all arguing about issues of Christology and Trinitarianism and salvation. And so as my work has expanded later in history, I've also sort of broadened my work to deal with issues of how did the early church understand developments in Christology. How did they understand different doctrines? How did even the church itself get formed and structured with bishops and all that so that they could decide and vote at councils and decide which way is the right way and all of that. So yes, I've had to broaden a lot. And hmm. and with that, it has raised one particular question that gets back to what you alluded to, my book that I'm writing with uh, Adam Wynn. So Adam Wynn's a New Testament expert, but he's a, he's a close friend of mine. 
And what we've been trying to work out is the fact that for the post-New Testament church, it is, I mean, it's virtually unanimously accepted. It's just, it's ubiquitous that when they read the Old Testament, they are reading this in a way that's, I mean, almost the opposite from what most modern Christians read mm. in terms of who they're encountering there. And I'll go back to that word I used earlier, persona. When we, modern Christians, whether we're scholars in the academy or practitioners in the church, we read the Old Testament and we generally assume that is God the Father that's actually acting and appearing in the Old Testament. And if you're a devout Christian, then the Son is there somehow, you know, typologically, figuratively, you know, foreshadowed, prophesied, all of that. But the Son doesn't actually show up until the Gospels. Right. Well, well, for Tertullian, Justin Martyr, Athanasius, everyone in the early church, they read the, the exact opposite. Whenever you see God appear in the Old Testament, it's a God the Son, oh, wow. not God the Father. And so... God the Father, of course, also speaks about God the Son prophetically through prophets and all of that. So, so it's not as if one is present and the other is absent, but whenever God speaks, it's the Father who speaks, and when Moses hears God speak, it is God the Word hmm. that Moses encounters. So in the burning bush, that's, that's God the Son speaking to Moses in the burning bush. And it, in fact, in Exodus 3, it's called the angel. The angel of the Lord speaks to Moses through that. So... Hmm. How did we get from that early Christian view to where we are today mm -hmm. is one question, but you could also back the train up in the other direction. Where did that view come from? We think we can argue that even some New Testament authors assume. Hmm. Uh, so God, the Gospel of John is, a, is an easy one. Most people would agree that when Jesus says things in John, like before Abraham was, I am, like that I am statement is a claim to be the I am who appeared to Abraham. And uh, the same is true for we think not mo most most New Testament scholars don't don't read Mark this way. We think Mark has a very similar assumption mm. about who Jesus is, and so we're we're going to try to show that as part of our work. It's actually mushroomed into a three volume book now, three three books. So we're starting off with stuff that happened before the New Testament, and yes, so your phrase two powers. If you look at some rabbinic literature from around the time of our New Testament. Uh, it, it would the, the timing is a little bit more complicated than what I'm letting on here. But if you look around this area of rabbinic literature, they will denounce what they call a two-power heresy. Hmm. Anybody who teaches there's not, not monotheism, but there's two powers or divine beings in heaven are, are heretics. And many scholars now are assuming that, and think they can show, that that is actually attacking Christians. Hmm. If Christians thought that God the Father was the highest power in heaven and God the Son was like the angel of the Lord who comes down yeah. or the wisdom of the Lord who comes down or word of the Lord who comes down. Uh, that's probably where these ideas originated. And yet we think we can, we, we're exploring all sorts of other things like that. Wisdom literature, you, uh, your audience may know in Proverbs, wisdom, again, there's our word persona. Uh, wisdom is a, is a persona, at least personified as creating the world, right. ruling over the world, doing all these things. Well, you can find that times 10 in later Jewish literature, right? Stuff that's not in our Protestant Bibles, mm -hmm. like Wisdom Solomon and Tobit and other things like that. So we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time in the background exploring where this could have come from, and then we're going to really dig deep in the New Testament to show what we think is there, that Jesus is the, the, the Yahweh, assumed to be the Yahweh of the Old Testament, and then trace that through later Christian development and writers like Tertullian mm -hmm. and others. 
Well, I'm I'm really excited. I told Doctor Adam Wynn the same thing. I I'll be the first pre-order of of that uh, of first volume. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, well, that's kind of you. I'm glad glad you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Doctor Wilhite, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. I, I this was a gold mine. I, I I really appreciate all the the information that you uh, provided and just your heart for the truth. And so I just yeah, I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on here, and thanks for the work that you're doing. I'm glad to see this. I hope your listeners uh, found it helpful. Yeah.